This, uh, this week here in Chutzlar, we're reading Parshat Shlach, but we're going to talk about something that affects all of Bami Bar. As a matter of fact, just for Dovi's sake, uh, I'm going to actually start it with uh, Korach. No, it's okay, because the truth is that the beginning of Korach is kind of a good way to start this. Uh, I'm going to share the, uh, the source sheet here. We'll take a look. Um, what I'd like to, 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 to do is to take a look at all of Bami Bar. Today is going to be kind of a broader look at Sefer Bami Bar. Parshat Shlach has one little piece in it, which is very troubling, which leads to this particular problem. Um, but, uh, but the truth is that, uh, that all of the, uh, that all of Sefer Mamid Bar really suffers from this, and we'll take a look at it. And if you want to give this a different kind of title, you could call it Ein Mukdam Mulchar B'Sefer Mamid Bar. Um, and uh, in a little while, I'll get to, to why that's an appropriate title. But I, I think that more of the issue is that what the order is, Seder Umusar B'Sefer Bamid Bar. And the premise is as follows. Sefer Bamid Bar is not in chronological order. And I'm going to show that to you several ways. It is explicitly not in, in, in uh, chronological order, as you can see from source one and source four. And that's the one that the Gemara Psachim in the middle of the first parak uses to prove Ein Mukdam Mukhar Torah. The Ramban, who is the famous devotee of Yesh Mukdam Mukhar Torah, and goes at it against Rashi and against Ibn Ezra and against Midrashim, uh, when he claims, for instance, that the Mishkan was commanded before the Egel, because that's the order in which the story appears, and that Yitro showed up before Matan Torah, because that's the order in which it appears. Those are two of the famous Machlokot where everybody else, or a lot of others, say Yitro came after Matan Torah. That's why Moshe was judging the people, to show them how to do the mitzvot, and that the Mishkan was a kapara for the Egel, uh, and it came afterwards. Um, and so even the Ramban has to, and he does, concede the point about these two particular passages in Sefer Bamidbar. If you take a look at Source 1, you'll see, by the Ber Adonai Moshe Bamidbar Sinai, Biohel Moed, in other words, Hashem spoke to, speaks to Moshe. We're going to get to the highlighted part a little bit later. But for right now, look at the date. The date is the first day of the second month, the month that we call ER, but second month, in the second year. It means this is a year and two weeks after we left Mitzrayim. If you go ahead to Perak and this is the explicit one in your face, but the truth is many of these are explicit. And now Hashem speaks to B'nai Yisrael sometime, as we know, in the first half of Nisan, meaning a month earlier or less, but certainly earlier. The reason I say or less is all we know from Pasuk Bet is that he says this in advance of Korban Pesach. And then that leads to people showing up and saying, we will not be able to bring the Pesach because we're Tameh, and that opens the door for Pesach Sheni. But that means that chapter one, to use the nomenclature, chapter one begins in, we'll call it May, just to have fun, and chapter nine begins in April, a month before, which tells you right away that at least those two sections are not in order. Now, Here's the challenge. Anytime that you find, whether it's the Ramban in those few cases where he has to admit it, or everybody else in all the cases where they maintain Ein Mukdam Mukhar Torah, 
they've got to then explain why are things out of order because the most natural way to tell a story is in order. And if you're going to modify the order, and I'll give an example from Gracian from something out of our context today, just to sort of keep it parv, if you're going to put something out of order, there's got to be a very good reason for doing it. Well, at least a good reason. So the example I'll give you is as follows. In the story, middle of the story of Yosef, Yosef is sold, and while he's being sold, we're holding our breath, there's a whole story about Yehuda and Tamar that takes place in a different place. Away from Yosef, away from Potiphar, away from Mitzrayim, away from Ishmaelim. There's a whole story about Yehuda and Tamar, an entire chapter, chapter 38. Now, if you read through the text, you will discover that it is almost impossible, I'm familiar with Seder Olam, but it's almost impossible to say that that happened then. Meaning, Yosef was sold, and at the very most, there are 22 years, and I say at the very most, I'll explain why. At the very most, there are 22 years between the point that Yosef is sold and the family comes down to Egypt. The reason I say at the most is because when we first meet Yosef, we're told that he's 17. When Yosef um, rises to power, the text says he's 30. There are seven years of plenty. There's the second year of the famine, which means Yosef's 39 when the family emigrates to Egypt, which means that if Yosef was sold when he was 17, then there's 22 years. If Yosef was sold a little later than that, maybe he was 19 or 20, there's less than 22 years. Okay, I'll grant you 22 years. The story of Yehuda cannot have started after the sale of Yosef, because Yehuda meets a woman, gets married, has two kids, and then later on, with a gap, a third kid. The first kid gets, is, then becomes old enough to marry, marries, and is sinful, and God kills him. The next brother is old enough to do Yibum, and minimally that's 13, but maybe a little older, and he messes up, and God kills him too. The third kid is significantly younger. And we wait a while until he grows up, and then Tamar realizes that that kid is never going to be allowed to do Yibum on her. And then Tamar goes and does what she does. Peretz is born, well, nine months later, Peretz and Zerach, and Peretz's son is listed among the people who went down to Egypt. To have all that happen in 22 years, impossible. And that's why the Rabag says very simply, the story of Yehuda started much earlier. In other words, the years overlap. It's not 22 years in the middle. While Yosef is in Egypt, all of this happens. Meaning, while Yosef is a slave in Egypt and viceroy without the family, that all this happens. Not happening. And so therefore, you got to ask the question, so why didn't the text put this earlier? And the answer is because it's trying to teach you a lesson. They're teaching you a lesson about Yehuda and his relationship with the brothers about Yehuda and his relationship with the people. Whatever the lesson is, not my problem now. This is not a shir on Yehuda. But whenever you see that ein mukdam muhar, you got to ask why. And so that's what we're going to kind of spend, devote our time here in looking at Bamidbar in a broader kind of analysis. Okay, so Parak Aleph, Parak Tet, as you can see, happens earlier. However, that's not the, the only problem in Bamidbar, even explicitly. Let's look back at Perak Chet in Source 3. In Source 3, Perak Chet, which is, of course, before Perak Tet, and this is, right after the menorah, this is the first big unit in Baalotcha. It is about the dedication of the Levi'im and uh, sanctifying them for their job. When did that take place? 
So you have to posit that that took place before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, because after all, Aharon and his sons are stepping into the position of running the Mishkan, and the Levim are supposed to be there to help them. There's no reason to believe that the Levim were an afterthought. Oh, we see that Aharon and his sons can't run things. Let's move the Levim up. And the Levim are already dedicated to the work of the Mishkan before Rosh Chodesh Nisan, which means now Perakhet happened before Perakhet. So now we've got uh, Perakhet happening first, then Perakhet, and then Perak Aleph. Okay, good. Now, we, we're not done with this because we move backwards again to Perak Zion, and that's in source five. And notice I'm running backwards, backwards and forwards here. That's the whole point about, about in Mukdam Mukhar. Look at, at chapter, at uh, source five, which is chapter seven. Chapter seven, by the way, is the longest chapter in Chumash, 89 Sukim, of which, as we've said before, about 66 of them are superfluous because it's the repetition, six Sukim each, of the gifts given by the Nassim, which is exactly the same gift. The only variables are which day it is, what shave it is, and the name of the Nassim. That's it. Exactly, letter for letter, Tom for Tom, the same exact thing. This happens when? which means this happens on Rosh Chodesh, or perhaps Erev Rosh Chodesh Nisan, when Moshe has finished constructing the Mishkan, and we're about to dedicate it starting with the first day of Nisan. So you see that we don't even have an order that we can identify. It's a zigzag. It's not like it runs backwards. It runs forwards, it runs backwards, and there must be some other rhyme or reason to what's going on. Now. Um, I'm going to show you one more thing, and then we're going to take a look back at these highlighted words and a, a very significant Rashbam here. In Perak Gimel Bamidbar, after the census, remember the census is Perak Aleph, that very long Perak that does a census of every tribe, and then at the end says, but don't count the Levim. And then Perak Bet, which does another census of the tribes, but sets them up by camps, and that the Levim will be in the middle. Perak Gimel is devoted to the Levim. We're going to look back at that phrase, Now, if we are in, let's say, Bamidbar mode, Paragimel, which is part of the unit with Paragolov, it seems, is happening in ER. Let me ask you, who are Aharon's sons in ER? The answer is Elazarni Tamar. Nadav and Avihu have got last names, and the last name, last name is Aleyam Shalom. Nadav and Avihu aren't around anymore. So how do you say Nadav, Tamar? And notice it doesn't then immediately say, but Nadav and Avihu are dead. It says, And then in Pasuk Dalit it says, Bimidbar Sinai. Now notice Bimidbar Sinai as opposed to the introduction of this parsha, which is Bahar Sinai. We're going to focus on that in a minute. Now, if you're taking a census, why are you counting dead people? It doesn't make sense to count Nadav and Avihu, Elazari Tamar, and then say, oh, oh sorry, Nadav and Avihu are, are dead. It doesn't make any sense. So the Rashbam. Uh, you take a look at it in source two. There's the Rashbam at the beginning of Bamidbar. Makes an interesting observation. And we're going to use this observation to widen our net 
even beyond Bamidbar. He says the following, Kol hadibrot shenamru b'shana rishona kodem shuhkam mishkan. Anything Hashem said to Moshe during the first year before the Mishkan was up, which means from the minute we left Egypt until the end of that year, until the Mishkan was up, or Kodesh Nisan of the next year. Katuv bahen Bahar Sinai. All of them say Bahar Sinai. They're introduced as what location was it? Bahar Sinai. And the notion is either on top of the mountain or perhaps at the foot of the mountain, but the mountain. But when the Mishkan was erected on the first day of the first month of the second year, it will no longer say Bahar Sinai. And or Ba'ohel Moed. And the, and, he, and he's being very methodological about this of saying the Torah is using specific terms to identify location. Bahar Sinai means on top or next to the mountain because that's where God is talking to Moshe. Remember, the purpose of the Mishkan was to be a place for Hashem to speak to Moshe and continue the Har Sinai experience in Ohel Moed. So he says, whenever it says Bimidbar Sinai, it may or may not add Be'ohel Moed, it means Be'ohel Moed, which means you can now identify a time factor. Any mitzvah which is given Behar Sinai was given sometime before Rosh Chodesh Nisan of that year. And any mitzvah which is Bimidbar Sinai and or Be'ohel Moed was given afterwards. Okay, and now watch how he proves his point. V'chein mochiach lefanenu, back in the Rashbam. Right? These are Aaron's sons when Hashem spoke to Moshe Bahar Sinai. Before the Mishkan was erected, we have four sons of Aaron. Good. But once the Mishkan was already erected, then there's only two. I look back at source six and you can see it. Who were Aaron's sons when Hashem was speaking to Moshe? And if you remember, when Moshe went up to the mountain, he took Nadav and Avihu with him. And it says, Nadav, El Avihu, El Azari, Tamar. Good. And then Pasuk Dalit shifts and is, Vayamu Nadav, Avihu, Lifnei Adonai, Barakivam, Ezra, Lifnei Adonai, Bimidbar Sinai. That is, after Rosh Chodesh Nisan. And now there's only two sons. Right? So that's, that's the, the, the distinction. All right? And so therefore the Rashbam, to conclude, Bimidbar Sinai, Yor, Ba'al, Vasov, Shnaim, Kivo, Bayom, Shukam, Oamoid, Metu Nadav, Avihu. Very straightforward. So now, um, in, uh, in source seven, which is the Rashbam's commentary directly on the counting of Nadav and Avihu, she says, Rashbam says, I already told you this. Shalom, why are you copying it again? I just want to show you the Rashbam takes this methodology very seriously. Okay, very good. 
But what that means is that even within a short little passage of few psukim, we're switching time. Now, the switching time here is forward from Bahar Sinai to Bimidbar Sinai. But remember, the census starts Bimidbar Sinai. Right? Now, if you remember it, we go back to the beginning of Vayikra. How does Vayikra start? Vayikra, let's take a look at it. Um, in pa passage 12. We'll come back to this in a minute. Vayikra Moshe I love me Hashem commands Moshe regarding the Korbanot Me'ohamoed. How does the chapter 25 in Vayikra start? Vayidaber Adonai Moshe Behar Sinai Lemor. Which means the end of Vayikra happens before the beginning of Vayikra. Okay, we're going to see more about that in Vayikra. But for right now, in Bamidbar. Um, so, taking a look further in this week's parasha or in last week's, if you're in Eretz Israel, Shlach, right after the story of the Miraglim of the, and, and the punishment given to them, <clears throat> the very next thing we have is a series of mitzvot. And, um, and the mitzvot, and this is part of the problem, is the mitzvot that exist in Bamidbar. When were those mitzvot given? And I'll give you one quick example. In Bamidbar, you have a big parasha. 34 psukim, I think it's 34 psukim, which is all devoted to the para duma. It's devoted to tumat mate, tumat ohel, tahara, and the punishment for entering, entering the mikdash if you are tamay. A lot of details. These details do not exist anywhere beforehand, which means if you're reading this in a linear fashion, you could come to the conclusion that at some point in the desert, and by the way, it seems to be the 40th year already. Hashem gave this new mitzvah, Tumat Ohel, and of Tahara. That, of course, is impossible. First thing is, Nadav and Avihu themselves died. And what was Moshe's reaction to Nadav and Avihu dying? He told Mishael and El Safan, their cousins, to take them out of the Mikdash. Elazar and Tamar can't touch them. Why? Because they'll become Tamei and won't be able to continue the Avodah. And why do the bodies have to be taken out of the Mishkan? He said it's the obvious aesthetic reason, because of Tumah. You don't have to go that far. You can go very simply in Bamidbar. When people come up to Moshe, we don't know how many people, come up to Moshe and say, we can't do the Korban Pesach because we're Tamei Lanefesh. That means Tumat Meit exists. Okay, but there's an assumption that within a month they will be no longer Tamei because they'll get Pesach Sheini, get a chance to do it. How are they going to become untamay Through a procedure. What procedure? We'll tell you about it later. No, I don't think so. Meaning, the laws of Paraduma already exist. The laws of Tumat Meit exist and Tarami Tumat Meit exist. Which means then we have to ask a fundamentally different question. Not why were these mitzvot given now, because they weren't. But why did Hashem tell Moshe to write it where he did? And for that, we have lots of different case-specific lessons Mitat Sadikim, to Mechaper Korbanot, it's like to the death of Miriam, could be other associations. But that means that when we read Sefer Bamidbar, specifically with, with regards to the mitzvot, we can't necessarily read it as it's happening in that order. Take a look, for instance, at this comment of the Ibn Ezra on the mitzvah of Nisachim, which is the first mitzvah given in, in linear fashion after the story of the Miraglim, after the Miraglim and the big failure of the Mapilim. 
The first thing we're told is when you come to the land, you're going to bring korbanot, you have to bring with the korban, you have to bring mesachim. So you have to bring a mincha, and, and, uh, which is shemen, and uh, shemen zayit, and dagan, and you have to bring uh, tirosh, you have to bring wine. Okay, even Ezra. Nismacha zota parasha, source nine. Al shenechleshu vayitablu. Why was this parsha here? Because the people felt terrible. To comfort them so that they should come to the land. Okay? He said, I think what's correct is, They all called out and they sinned. They said, we want to go back to Mitzrayim. And Moshe's tefillah brought about uh, forgiveness. That's why the next mitzvah given, this chala, and then afterwards, talks about korbanot brought for making mistakes, things that you regret. And in that parasha it says God will forgive. In other words, the Ibn Ezra is saying, why is this parasha put here? It's put here by association, thematic association, with the fact that Bnei Yisrael sinned, asked to be forgiven, were forgiven, and now here is an example of how that will happen in the future, when you err, even in something as egregious as a Vodazarab, and there'll be a vehicle for forgiveness. Um, now, the way the Demon Ezra presents it, it, seemed, it sounds as if these mitzvot are given here. But now I'm going to show you something that, if you haven't seen it before, is guaranteed to blow your mind. One of the seminal events in Bamidbar is, of course, May Meriva, is uh, B'nai Israel are wandering, Miriam is dead. At least the setting of the text, Miriam is dead, the Israel are wandering, and they are already very close to Eretz Israel. By the way, perhaps they may be technically inside of Eretz Israel in Midbartzin, and they have no water, and they complain, and Hashem says to Moshe, take the stick. We all know the story. Now, we're looking at Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor. A quick introduction to Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, whose popularity is, thank God, on the rise after many centuries of not being well-known. Um, Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor is part of that very precious group of three generations or so of Mefarshei HaPshat in northern France, which of course starts with Rashi. Uh, Rashi's um, uh, grandson was sort of like the next generation of that, the Rashbam. And the Rashbam had a student, Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, he was Rabbi Yosef of Orleans, He's mentioned in Tosfot, but he was uh, a famous mefaresh that uh, explained shat. Um, and, and he often had quite innovative uh, approaches to things. For reasons that are beyond what we could talk about here, many of the, most of the, of the um, really remarkable mefarshap shat did not make it in the popularity contest. And their writings were not necessarily preserved in some cases we're still working for manuscripts. In some cases, we're still piecing together from how they're quoted by other Rishonim. Uh, but there's been a revival of interest in Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor, Rabbi Yosef Kara, uh, and Rabbi Eliezer Bojansi, other of these great Chachamim. So Rabbi Yosef Bechor Shor says the following. That's his quick, quick introduction. Uh, put him in uh, the uh, middle to the end of the 12th century. Listen to what the Choshor says, because it's wild. He says, this story of Moshe, the stick, the punishment, not being able to enter the land for whatever reason, 
all the list of all the things that Moshe did that the people have compiled, is the same story, not a repeat, it's the same story as the story that appears in Shmot. If you remember when Bnei Yisrael are in, in, in the Midbar on their way to Har Sinai, they first cross Yamsuf and they find water and the water is stagnant and Moshe throws a stick in and makes it sweet. And then the man. And after the man, there's another story of thirst. And the people are testy and angry with Moshe. And Hashem tells Moshe to take a stick and hit the rock. And water comes out and everybody drinks. And it's very nice, except they call the place Masa Umariva because the people tested and quarreled with God. All right? Good. Now, watch the rock. Before short. There's the same story. Hashem, there's thirst. They're in the desert. But this is at Har Sinai now. Not in the Negev somewhere. It's in Har Sinai. And Hashem told Moshe, take a stick and hit it, and the rock water will come out. The purpose of Bishalach and the purpose of Shmot, that part of Shmot is to tell, is to teach how HaKadosh Baruch Hu took care of Bnei Yisrael with food and with water, etc. And then each one of those components gets written later. By the way, where is the story of the Slav repeated? It's repeated in Parshat Balotcha, but there it's repeated with a very negative angle. We'll come back to that. Where is the story of the man told? In Parshat Balotcha. Both of those are complaining stories. And later on in Chukat also. And he says the story of the water is, the, is now told, which means all three things happen before they get to Sinai. The water from the rock, the man, the slav, and it's presented from a perspective of welfare. HaKadosh Baruch Hu took care of Israel. In Bamidbar, we hear other pieces of the same story, the negative side of the same story. Okay. V'tidasha charu zeh that you should know, he's emphasizing it, it's the same story. Now, by the way, he knows that he is flying in the face of Midrashim. He's flying in the face of Chazal. He's flying in the face of other Mepharshim and saying this. Mepharshim are like that. They will take a position and they'll stand with it. In Shmot, it says, they call the place testing and quarreling. When Moshe gives his brachot, Right? In, in, when it comes to Shevet Levi, he said, Asher nisito b'masa tirivehu riva, and that's talking about the case where Moshe was told he can't come into the land. And that makes reference to the same words used in Shmot, masa umriva. Al see it's one story. He says at the end of this parsha, it says, those are the waters of Mariva. It's also midbar tzin, midbar tzin. So he says tzin and tzin is just variations on the same word. Geographically, we think we seem to know differently, but watch what he's saying. In other words, what it didn't say here, it said there. What it didn't say there, it did say here. It's what the Chazal say. One place fills in the information, the other place doesn't give you. Meaning in Shmot, Hashem told him to hit the rock, which by the way now leads the Bechor short have to say that Moshe did wrong wasn't hitting the rock because that's what he was told to do, the whole list of things. Look what he says. 
this is consistent, that the Torah will, will ex explicate something in one place and leave it ambiguous in another place. And you got to use one to fill in the information from the other and watch what he uses as an example. Kegon Parshat Miraglim. Now, if you look in this week's Parsha, Parshat Shlach, you see the story of the Miraglim. And by the way, whose idea was it to send the Miraglim? It seems to be Hashem's idea or Moshe's idea. And um, and but in Dvarim and Parak Aleph, it's presented as B'nai Yisrael saying we want to send people. So his position is this is not a one-time deal. This happens consistently in the Torah where the same story is told twice from different perspectives. Parenthetically, and this is a very important parenthesis, so maybe I should take the parentheses off. Here he is in the 12th century, and he is anticipating, in a sense, and I'm sure, hopefully not, I don't think consciously, but he's anticipating the arguments that Wellhausen is going to make at the end of the 18th century and beginning of the 19th century, which are that you see different versions of the same story. It must be different sources, different traditions, PED, etc. And he's, in a sense, anticipating, but I think a little bit better, is... Rav Royer's whole position of of saying that the same story or the same law will be told in two different places in the Torah to give you two perspectives on it. Uh, and Rav Royer could have, been building, could have been building on this. I want to use that to get us to, to, uh, to the Mekoshesh, and then, which is in Parshat Shlach, and then take a look at something that's not even in Bamidbar. So do the Mekoshesh, talk about Bamidbar for a couple minutes, and then show you how this is a broader issue. At the end of Parshat Shlach, almost the end because the end is, is uh, Tzitzit, we have a story of a Mikoshesh. Out of nowhere, in the middle of all those laws, Nesachim and Chala and, uh, how do you call it, and Chatat uh, for Avodah Zarah, etc., we suddenly have Mikoshesh. It's a story. And what happens in the story? They find the guys collecting wood on Shabbat. Now, we all know the story. I'll just quickly paraphrase it. They, the, the people who found him bring him to Moshe. They put him in a lockdown because they don't know what to do with him. And then Hashem comes and says, he gets skila. Well, from a perspective of halacha, juridical procedure, this is untenable. Because one of the staples, and those of you who were in the Zoom shear, this, uh, the uh, dive shear this week, remember this, one of the staples of, uh, of the court is that witnesses have to be able to testify that the criminal not only was warned explicitly about what they were doing, but was warned with full information as to the nature of the violation and the specific consequences for the violation. And if the person doesn't say, I know I'm going to get skila for this, and I don't care, I'm going to go ahead and do it again, you can't give them skila. Here, in this case, it's very clear that they didn't know what to do. Nobody knew what to do because they had, they blocked them up and they waited and Hashem then said, okay, get Skila. How did they give the guy Skila? So what I suggested a few years ago, and I still stand by it, is that the Mekoshesh is, and I'm using the Bechor Shor's typology here, the Mekoshesh here is the other piece of the story in Shmot, just like the, the rock. In Shmot, we hear a story in the context of the Man. And Israel get the Man, it's beautiful, they're blown away, the stuff from yesterday didn't go bad. Beautiful, the first Shabbat, it's wonderful. And the next week, 
On Shabbat, people go out to, to collect money, and Hashem gets very angry. And, I've given you Shabbat, it's a great gift. Don't violate it. Hashem is angry. But we don't hear anything about what happens to the guys who went out to collect money. What I'd like to suggest is that's who this is. Makoshesh is that guy way back then, before we got to Sinai, who went out to collect man on the 14th day of, since the man fell, the second Shabbat. Because it's filling in the story, which of course explains now why nobody knows what to do with him. They haven't gotten those laws yet. And all of the procedural stuff hasn't happened yet. So if Hashem says, give him skila, give him skila. Now, the reason I'm mentioning that is because here you see another example of something which didn't happen now, but nonetheless is put here. Why is it put here? It seems to be put here because the, the passage just before, which was talking about korbanot brought when somebody makes a mistake, somebody sins in error, then talks about if somebody does a crime flagrantly, then and here we have a great example of a guy acting flagrantly. So beautiful piece of Example, don't think people don't act that way. Here's a guy who did act that way. Remember a year ago in the desert, the guy acted that way. And, the, and here it is. So what we see is in Bamidbar, certainly it's the case that Sefer Bamidbar is not in order. So what is the order of Bamidbar? So I'm going to take you to the, to the header of this whole page. When you look at the first 10 chapters, it is a festive piece. And the workbook that I use at school uh, that I make for the students in school, the first 10 chapters all have a header moving up. Moving up. Moving up, Nazir, moving up, Hanukkah to Mizbech, moving up, Levim, moving up. And then when we get to chapter 11, everything is called moving down. You read it, you see. Bamidbar, Naso, and the most of Balotcha is festive, it's exciting. Towards the end of Perak Yod, there's a custom even in many shuls to read the Masa'ot, the travels with the Shira tune. The Al-Tzvah, etc. Right? The festive tune because it's a festive feeling. And then you get those two backward nuns facing each other, and inside is what's the culmination of the festivity. The culmination of the festivity is by he being so Aaron, by Yomer Moshe, all of these chapters have been leading up to a glorious march in Territ Israel and a glorious conquest led by the Aaron. And then, of course, the rest of it is the reality. And the reality is perhaps best typified by contrasting that picture of the Aaron going out to war with the picture at the end of the story of the Miraglim, when the people go up to fight, the Aaron and Moshe stayed in the camp. And they lost. People lost. They were, they were wiped out. So what you have is the first 10 chapters. We're not concerned with them being linear. We're concerned with them presenting a picture. And the picture of the first 10 chapters of Amibar is, this is what the camp should look like. This is what the march should have been. From Parakut Aliphan, here is a collection of stories that tell you how it was. It wasn't all great. By the way, it wasn't all bad. And there were responses. There were challenges to leadership. There were punishments. 
something we've talked about in the past. When did Korach happen? Korach very likely happened before Hanukkah Tamishkan, because of course, what kind of fools would take Torah in their hand after Nadav and Aviyah were killed and said, okay, I'll be part of a test. Right? So there's lots of reasons to argue that some of the stories that happened in, in Bamidbar happened in an earlier time. They're put there to describe this is the real thing. Picking up on the Bechor Shor's image, uh, uh, methodology, this is the real thing that happened in the, in the Midbar. It wasn't all bad. And read your Miyahu Bet, is pictured as a beautiful time. Look at Hoshea Bet. It's a romantic time of relationship with HaKadosh Baruch Hu, but there were challenges. Things were not perfect. And of course, the big one was the Miraglim, which led to a whole generation having to die out. And so it's presented that way for an educational purpose. You read Bamidbar, we're not reading a travelogue. That's Parshat Masai. We are reading an image of what could have been, what should have been, and what was. And if you think that's unprecedented, I'd like to draw your attention to Sefer Bereshit. When you read Perak Aleph of Sefer Bereshit, what do you read? You read a story of creation. You read Perak Bet, meaning Perak Bet, Pasuk Dalet, on to the end of Perak Bet and Perak Gimel. What do you read? Another story of creation. Do the two stories uh, sit harmoniously? Only with a lot of stretching. They're not harmonious. Did creation take seven days or six days? Did it take one day? Was woman created with man or from man? Were animals created before man or afterwards? Is man's job to be, have dominion or to be a farmer? We're familiar with the difficulties. So the Midrash addresses it. And the Midrash addresses it from a different perspective and says, in the first story, of course, the name used for, for God throughout is Elohim. And in the second story, it's Hashem Elohim. And the Midrash says, originally God's intent, whatever that may mean. He wanted to create the world according to a strict measure of justice, which means you mess up, you're gone, finished. He saw that the world could not last that way. He included, he didn't substitute, he added Hashem Elohim. What does that mean? That means chapter one never happened, according to the Midrash. Chapter one was a plan. Chapter one was an ideal. Chapter one was to borrow from the Midrash the blueprint. Chapter two is what actually happened. That's the Midrash. And so you have that model already as early as Breshit. You see the same model in Bamidbar. This is what should have been. This is the ideal. This is the image. And this is what actually happened. Real people with real problems, real fears, real jealousies, real challenges. Sometimes the challenges are good, like Benot Slavchad, and sometimes the challenges are awful, like Datan and Aviram. But real life. The interesting thing is that this phenomenon is not limited to Bamidbar. I gave one example from Breshit earlier, which is, you know, just for interest, that this other one from Breshit is not about linear, linearity, but about, uh, but about, um, about um, ideal versus real. But I want to take, draw your attention, end the shiur, to the beginning of Sefer Vayikra. And remember what the Rashbam said, and by the way, the Rashbam repeats it here, is that every time that a command says Bahar Sinai, that refers to things that were given before there was a Mishkan. When it says Bemidbar Sinai, that's in the Mishkan. So take a look at the beginning of Vayikra. Vayikra Moshe, which means these mitzvot are given in Ohel Moed. Right? They constructed the Mishkan, and Hashem calls Moshe. Moshe can't go in. The cloud, end of Shmot. Moshe then hears these mitzvot, the mitzvot of Ola, of Mincha, of Shlamim, of Chatat, and of Hashem. Beautiful. 
All right, and these are all given in there. And then we get to the beginning of Parshat Tzav, and Tzav et we assume that Parshat Tzav, because we read it, also has details of the Ola and the etc. And we assume, okay, Parshat Tzav is some other perspective on the Korbanot, and it is. You think about it, Parshat Vayikra is the perspective to donors. You want to bring out a Korban, it's the kind of animal to bring. Make sure it's this old, make sure it's perfect, make sure it's male, female, etc. Right, bring the breads with it, whatever. Sav is the instructional manual for the for the officiants. Here's how the Kohanim, once the, once your hand the Kohanim, here's what you do. Okay. Notice, by the way, the order in Sav is a little different, as you can see in the blue highlight. Mincha, Ola, Mincha, Chatat, Hasham, Shlamin. Now, at the end of Sav, what does it say? Zot Torah, which, by the way, in an interesting typo, ended up as Velat in a song that some of us sing on where did Hashem give this mitzvot? Behar Sinai, which means before the Mishkan. Well, I thought you said in the beginning of Vayikra it happened in the Mishkan. What is it? And then watch to make it more confusing, it says, on the day that he commanded Israel to bring their korbanot, which is it? And the Rashbam picks up on that, and he says in Source 15, Hashem's original commands about korbanot happen on top of the mountain. Right? In other words, here's what happened. Up on top of Har Sinai, Hashem commanded Moshe about the Mishkan. That's clear. Hashem commanded Moshe about Big Day Kuna. That's clear. Hashem also commanded Moshe regarding sanctifying the Kohanim. It's in Parshat Tetzaveh. And how were the Kohanim sanctified? They have to bring a Mincha, they have to bring a Chatat, they have to bring a Shlamim, they have to bring an Olah. So all of those laws were already given how to do those things. What laws weren't given? What laws weren't given were if a regular person wants to bring a korban, what do they bring? And so the beginning of Vayikra happens afterwards. The beginning of Vayikra is, ooh, now that we've got a Mishkan, if a Jew wants to come and bring a korban, here's what he can do. He wants to bring an Olah, good. He has to bring a male, has to be this old, has to be, it can be from the herd, from the flock, etc. It can be a bird. Person wants to bring a Mincha, here's the different options that exist. Person wants to bring a shlamim. Here's all the different things that are involved, and then in some circumstances you'll be obligated to bring a chatat to an asham. And then the Torah writes material that was already given earlier on top of our Sinai, which is how to perform these korbanot, which had to be given because setting up the mishkan involved a dedication ceremony with korbanot. They had to know how to do. So what you see here is that even at the beginning of Vayikra, the presentation is not chronologically accurate, meaning Hashem didn't say Perak Aleph and then say Perak Bet. Hashem said Perak Aleph through Hay, and earlier had said Perak Vav and Zion. And so why are they set up? The Torah is not a history book, and the Torah is not a transcription of words. The Torah is God's guide to how we have to live. How we have to live, what we have to do, what we have to avoid, the kind of attitudes and values we have to internalize, the way we have to treat each other, the whole picture. And therefore, it will place things in sequence 
in a way that will be meaningful towards that message. In a purely halachic sense, we have an interesting machloket among the Tanaim about whether dorshim smuchim, whether juxtaposition means anything in the Torah. However, interesting, Rabbi Yehuda, who says it doesn't, says in, in Dvarim it does. Why is Dvarim the iconoclast here? Why is Dvarim the outlier in which order actually makes a difference? Because Dvarim is an ordered speech. And Moshe gives that speech in order. And there, the order of things is intentional. And therefore, if things are juxtaposed, that's a meaningful thing. Juxtaposition in the other books may be motivated by other considerations, and therefore, lodoshim smuchim. Okay? So that's um, just a, a, a look at Bamibar. Um, hopefully, uh, a little bit of, um, of an insight into the very big divide that those double nuns kind of create for us and, uh, and to go from there.